back east they say is leaving home every day Beating the hot old dusty way to the California line Across the desert sands they roll Getting out of that old dust bowl They think they're going to a sugar bowl But here's what they find Now the police at the port of entry say You're number 14,000 for today Oh, if you ain't got the do-re-mi you ain't got the do-re-mi Why, you better go back to beautiful Texas Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee California is a garden of Eden A paradise to live in or see But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot If you ain't got the do-re-mi and that was Woody Guthrie starting us off on the Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Uly, your host this summer, and we're taping a show um, on the phone today. It's June 11th, 2019, and we have Joanna Howard joining us. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Amanda. So glad you're here. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to talk to you. Thrilled to talk to you. Joanna has um, a memoir out from McSweeney's publishing this fall. It's coming out in October 2019, and it's called Rerun Era. Um, for our listeners who uh, don't know your work yet, Joanna, I'd like to just sort of read your bio to introduce you. And then maybe after I do that, you could introduce um, the book for us. Sure. Um, Joanna Howard is a writer and translator from Miami, Oklahoma. She's the author of the novel Foreign Correspondent the story collection On the Winding Stair, I'm sorry, story collections, On the Winding Stair and In the Colorless Round, and Field Glass, a collaborative novel written with Joanna Rocco. She also co-translated Walls by Marcel Cohen and Cows by Frederick Boyer. She teaches in the Literature PhD program at Denver University. And you're joining us in Ann Arbor via phone today. So thanks for doing that. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy. Yeah. And Rerun Era, we're so excited to be publishing at McSweeney's this fall. Um, it's such a beautiful book. And um, I, I know many of our listeners won't have heard it uh, by the time this airs uh, because it's pre-release. So I hope that you could sort of explain um, explain the book for our listeners. Sure. Um, yeah, this, is a, this was a sort of surprise project for me. I'm usually a fiction writer. Uh, and create things from the imagination completely. And so uh, for this book, I instead investigated my childhood and went back to pretty much the year 1980 when I was five years old and um, growing up in rural Oklahoma and uh, in a family with some some uh, difficulties, financial difficulties, I think you would mm-hmm. say, a lot of poverty in the area where I grew up. My father was a truck driver, and my mother was a secretary. Mm-hmm. And um, in the year 1980, my father had a, a stroke, which was pretty shocking for our family. It uh, wasn't fatal. He did survive. Um, but the effects and the ripples of that year really have carried out throughout my life. And so in writing Rerun Era, I was thinking a lot about how uh, some things that happen when you're young really stretch into uh, the rest of your life. And so I I used that kind of moment in my past as the starting point for the book. But really, I think the meat of the book is more about what we 
what we did in our daily lives and what we watched on television and what we listened to on the radio. Um, a lot of the happy moments of my childhood come from the kind of quieter times when people sat together around the television, it seems really uh, silly, but it, w- it was really the place in which our family could kind of come together. And, uh, and so I, uh, I'm doing a lot of thinking back through how those experiences, the television we watched, the, the songs we listened to on the radio, really also color that time and are emblazoned in my mind, I think, because it was, um, it was a particularly dramatic time. <laughs> and so that's so interesting. Do you think that the time, the, the TV that you watched and those family moments were emblazoned in your mind um, because of the trauma and the difficulty that year that you were five? Or do you think that it's something else? I think, you know, I I think actually my, I don't know uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg on this one, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, I I have my whole life kind of organized time around my memories of what I watched that year or read that year or what songs I was listening to when I was uh, on that particular vacation. So it's always been kind of popular culture as an organizing principle. But I suspect that that might actually come from uh, it being this thing in my childhood where I would find kind of uh, moments of respite. Um, And uh, uh, the television was always running in our home, and the radio was always running. My dad slept with the radio on. Uh, It just seemed like a beautiful part of the book when you mentioned (laughs) that. Actually, Um. it's it's something I could never do. I I could never do myself, but um, I I definitely grew up with it. Uh, So yeah, I I don't really know if the trauma. Uh, I mean, the trauma occasions the book, certainly, but um, I kind of think that my mind works that way now. To organize your life and sort of mark it with these um, touchstones of culture and books and and TV. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I find, um, I think the reverse can sometimes be true. I mean, I, I feel like when I play a song from my teenage years or watch a program that I watched when a kid when I was a kid um it comes back that Mm. time comes back so even even if I hadn't um thought about being seven and affiliated with that tv program watching that tv program uh, would bring back seven (laughs) for me um yes yeah absolutely I agree with that completely it's sort of the reciprocal idea so after after writing fiction and doing some translating and other things, how how did you decide to... You said it was a surprise project. How, how did it come to be? Yeah, it, um, it... I think that the kernel of this came from the poet... Uh, C.D. Wright, who I I worked with when I was teaching at Brown University, uh, she is um, she was an important figure in my life. Sadly, she passed away a few years ago. Um, but she was from Arkansas, which uh, and she was from exactly the same town where my mother's family was from. Even though I grew up in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, and uh, she she was somebody who had been this real figure of. Uh, success to me as as coming from a similar background as me and um, and really making it in the literary world and at a certain point she she pulled me aside I think we were at some sort of a graduation party or something and she said why don't you ever write about your dad um, and why don't you ever write about where you come from and I I didn't really have a great answer for that <laughs> but I was trying to think mm-hmm. about it 
And Had you been avoiding I've, it actively, avoiding writing about yourself and your background? I think probably it's, I think once you start going down that path, sometimes there's this threat that you'll just never get out of it. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, right. even when I was, after I finished this book, I wasn't sure I was done with it. I, my mother was ill at that time and um, I could imagine another part of this book that was dealing with my mother and my mother's death. Um, it, it it seemed like, you know, if you start to plumb the the trauma of the past, it it can kind of grab hold. So I think I was nervous about that because our family had, uh, I don't know, they're not like the most terrible secrets, but there are always little secrets in families. And then Mm -hmm. as they start to come forward and you're not really sure how to deal with them, I think I was nervous about that. But also I I think, um, you know, I think it's really hard to appreciate the place that you come from if the place that you come from is is perceived pretty negatively in the popular imagination. Um, and growing up in rural Oklahoma, in in uh, rural America, I mean, especially in 2019, it's it's something where it's like you have to dig deep to remember that there are um, at, like aspects of that world that work against kind of the general tide of uh, yeah disapproval. <laughs> <laughs> When you were young in rural Oklahoma, did you wish that you were somewhere else? Oh, yeah. I wanted to live in New York. I I, mm-hmm. I would watch, you know, these television programs where people lived in these giant apartments in New York, which, of course, <laughs> was such a fantasy. What, and <laughs> which, which programs? The Jeffersons, I, I'm thinking uh, of. Jeffersons. I was completely obsessed with the Jeffersons. I was, I mean, too. It was, it was, the Jeffersons it, were amazing. <laughs> it seemed to me like uh, that it was like a kind of parallel narrative, you know, even though it was like, obviously, it was uh, the like there was not a lot of African-American demographic where I grew up, but I definitely, and my dad did too, associate with this idea of moving up in the world and then having to kind of constantly defend your position yeah. against the world if you could get into that penthouse. And so yeah. I was definitely obsessed with that um uh different strokes the 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 apartment oh, right, that they right. lived in and that also was a really it was big fancy one. that was mm. yes. yeah staircase in the apartment yes. i mean can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> so did you feel did you feel like you saw yourself and your family on tv in those years that you were watching tv in oklahoma it's funny because there's this thing that I I read about after I finished the book, um, but um, in in cultural in cultural criticism they talk about this this period called the rural purge uh, to to discuss the fact that in the 70s there were all these programs on television that that dealt with like rural communities things like Green Acres and right. the Beverly Hillbillies and um, Mayberry RFD and all of that stuff and um, and then there were all these working class narratives too about truck drivers you know there was like the Smokey and the Bandit era mm-hmm. uh, BJ and the Bear all of this stuff where you saw real working class people Chico and the Man 
which is another one my dad really liked, and uh, Sanford and Son. And um, and they all got kind of pushed out in the 80s and sort of the Reagan era for these programs that were really like about like fabulously rich dynasties, you know, literally <laughs> dynasty or dynasty. Falcon Crest. Dallas, yeah. Yeah, and Dallas. And so, yeah. so I think when I was a little kid, I did see what I thought of as representations of, uh, you know, working class people. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, they had their stereotypes and their problems for sure. Um, but uh, it was really only kind of like this this change in um, uh, the, the desire to, to live the lifestyles of the rich and famous, which came along a little later. And then I ceased to kind of see those representations, I think. Um, yeah. It makes you think about uh, people who are living in rural parts of America now and what they're seeing in, in our popular culture. Um, it's changed so much. We have more choices than network TV, but um, it makes you wonder about representation now. Do you have a perspective on that? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think in in the current era where I I look back at the place I came from and I think how how can people vote against their interests so so con constantly? And I do think that like part of part of the fantasies that come about have to do with the the representations that we see in our in our daily lives and mm-hmm. if you're being told that something happens one way or is one way um, and you're seeing characters that are depicted in particular ways I think you can get uh, easily sucked into the fantasy of that and um, uh, I think I actually feel kind of lucky that I saw a number of things growing up that uh, had different sort of narratives that could that could get stuck in my mind, and um, and that you know, for instance, you could be a hillbilly and you could end up in a mansion. It was a <laughs> it was a possibility that was had yeah. actually been put forward to me. Yeah. Um, and as as silly as it all was, um, so I worry about representation um, of those communities definitely, um, and in particular, just like. Uh, I think we we need something right now to remind us that there are a lot of working class people in these rural areas that also um, uh, are concerned about the political moment and are concerned about yes. their futures and are concerned about um, you know problems like racism and sexism and homophobia and those people do exist in those places. It's just about figuring out um, how to remind the world that they're there so that they can gain a little more voice. Yeah. How do we do that? How do we remind the world that we're all there and, <laughs> and that those perspectives matter? Because I think we're, I think we might be, I don't want to say we've lost it, but we're close. We're, we're losing some, some of that perspective. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, one of the reasons that, um, I kind of wanted to write this book is that I did grow up with a father who, um, who was a member of the Teamsters, and so he just had a really strong union sensibility, and he was real street smart. He had not had a great education, had difficulty reading, but he was um, incredibly savvy, and so he given me a real understanding of the ways that the system worked against people even, you know, back in the day in the 70s and 80s. And um, and so when I was working on the book, I really, I wanted to um, remind myself, I think, of that um, and that education. And then I also wanted to remind myself of, like, a lot of people I grew up with that uh, also shared my values and shared my, uh, my political beliefs. And um, uh, I spent a lot of time around 
young boys, some of which, some many of whom, you know, carried guns and went hunting, mm-hmm. um, but who also were uh, not super sexist and homophobic and racist. <laughs> um, it was actually possible to find that community, yeah. and um, and the, but they also were like really uh, struggling. And I think that a lot of the people that I grew up with um, ended up in jobs that didn't really go anywhere didn't have a lot of protections. The unions have sort of disappeared in that part of the world, and people mm-hmm. have been talked out of believing in them. Um, I had a lot of friends who ended up in jail. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really hard to get the message out there, but I think that for me anyway, writing about my dad and remembering my dad and my brother, who's still in Oklahoma um, and has the most like lefty politics of anyone I know, <laughs> um, but he can't really talk out loud, you know. He can't really uh, he can't really say that a lot to a lot of people uh, because the voice and the platform is just not there. That's really interesting. Uh, I th- you have a a way of a perspective of parsing out, uh, you could say, rural culture, um, and helping people understand the the different threads, um, and that the homophobia and racism is certainly not pervasive and it's not everyone um but it and it doesn't uh necessarily mean if someone appreciates the what did you say before carrying a gun and hunting and things like that that those are different things um and that's so important to remember your book makes that point well uh this is the living writer show on wcbn fm ann arbor i'm amanda yuley your host and we're speaking to joanna howard who's author of rerun era i think we'll hear um another song that you chose for us joanna and then when we come back, um, we'd love to have you maybe read a little section and talk a little bit more about Rerun Era. But for now, Steppenwolf. The Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and we're speaking to Joanna Howard. Thanks for being here on the phone with us, Joanna. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to talk about your forthcoming book, Rerun Era, from McSweeney's, October 2019. Um, and w- the book is a memoir. Um, I, 
I would love to ask you your perspective on, uh, I think especially because you are, um, you're known as a fiction writer and that is what you have mostly published before. Um, I'd love to ask your perspective on a conversation that comes up kind of with every memoir, which is this idea about, um, fidelity to the facts and Mm -hmm. about, um, how one's memory may impact the, those facts and, and their accuracy. Um, and I just wonder how you approach that and if you, and what thought you've given to that, especially because of something you mentioned earlier about um, family secrets hmm. and, and how um, guarded or not guarded you may have been when you set, uh, set your story to paper. Right, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a really important conversation. Um, and uh, when I started the project, I mean, one of the saving graces of the way I write is that I don't always have a sense of what I'm doing when I'm doing it or where mm-hmm. it's going to go. So I didn't even really know, is this a memoir? Is this a, is this a thinly veiled novel? I, I, mm-hmm. I, I hadn't decided. I, I realized that I was fairly quickly, I realized I was putting in the names of my family members. And, and I think the minute I saw their names appear, I knew that I was in a terrain that was going to be a little more delicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it was at that point that I, I just contacted my brother, who is, uh, my both my parents have passed away, sadly, but my brother's still well, well and good. And, um, and he is 10 years older than me. And so he, he, he had that little extra edge of understanding our childhood um, from a slightly older perspective. So at that point, we really we talked through a number of things, and I realized that he wanted me to write about things that were that I was hesitant to write about. That I would have felt like we wanted to keep a little bit under wraps really? in the family. <laughs> a couple of things there that I would have probably soft shoot, and he really wanted them to come out. I mean, namely, I would say that. Um, the, uh, our grandfather committed suicide, and um, our father found him and when he was a little boy. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't really know how to approach that story. And my brother, um, in, in kind of talking me through uh, the memory of what he'd been told about that story, suddenly I realized, well, it's, o- it's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be guided by um, his sort of shaping of things to be a little bolder and to talk about some of the... Um, the, the more hurtful things that lingered in the family. And so at that point, um, I went a little bit, I went a bit more forward with some things. But um, I don't know that I would have, I don't know how I would have felt about publishing this book with my father alive, even though I I, I don't think that I'm doing any kind of a hatchet job. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, I, and I, even though I wrote it while my mother was alive, I was very nervous about uh, what my mother would think about it, and she passed yeah. away before the book uh, came to light. But um, I, I was nervous because she would have disputed a number of the narratives that are in the book for sure. Do you do you have those conversations not with your mother now, of course, but with yourself about disputing those, disputing some of those facts and some of those impressions, or do you feel very solid in them yourself? I I I'm always going to be one of these people who who doubts memory. I I I think I have a pretty weird memory. Sometimes I remember meticulous details and people tell me I have a great memory and then other times I do remember things wildly wrong and someone will prove it to me. <laughs> um and so I 
I get nervous about the way I remember things. But I also realized when I was writing the book that part of what happened in our childhood is that we had our parents, uh, you know, for it was it was a time when I don't think they they knew psychologically what they were doing, but they had they kind of pitted us against each other and they pitted us against the other parent. They didn't get along that great. And so um, we we would have these competing narratives running of like who was the good parent and who was the bad parent. And um, uh, I think that does a lot of harm in a family. And so I wanted to be as honest as I could about yeah. uh, what I remembered and what maybe people would tell me was not true and um, and just kind of investigate like how, how you get over those kinds of uh, competitive narratives in the family. I think it happens more often than not, weirdly, that, yeah. that parents will kind of just, they just get fed up with each other and then children get brought into these um, these sort of like, uh, you know, plot making <laughs> opportunities. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, in the end, what you remember is, is the book and is the, is the real thing. Uh, yeah. even, yeah. <laughs> even if it's, it would be disputed or, or denied, uh, by others that were there. Um, I wonder, you know, for a book like this, it's it's a nonfiction book, and I I have to ask the question about research. So, is is the research for such a book in speaking with your brother and in your memory, or is it also in other things? Is it um, did, you, did you interview anyone else? I don't know if you interviewed your brother, but <laughs> did you did you speak to people who were there at the time who maybe were not five years old as you were? Um. I I definitely uh, I mostly just I kept it between me and my brother. I think that mm-hmm. uh, because a wedge had been kind of driven between us when we were young, we didn't have a great relationship for many many years. Um, and it was really only when my parents were kind of on their way out that I got to know my brother in this way. And um, so I wanted this to be this intimate project that was kind of a, between us and between our memories. Mm-hmm. Um, he went around and talked to a, a number of people. I know he would send me an email and say, oh, I, I finally found such and such. And he remembers the, the you know, this thing that, you know, oh, where the gas station needs to be. That's yeah. fascinating that your brother was kind of on the ground. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> doing, and he, doing that. he has a really great memory, too. Um mm-hmm. And um, a memory that it's, he also has a memory that's very shaped by popular culture. And so it was kind of interesting, even though I don't think he, I never talked about this kind of premise of the book that that I had where I was using television to sort of organize things. Mm -hmm. Um, But he just instinctively would say, oh, yeah, don't you remember? That was that night we were watching Starsky and Hutch, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so we have a kind of, we've obviously, our memories have been kind of similar shapes. So beyond that, I just would like, you know, I'll go online and double check that, a song is actually a song that I think it is or <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things I found so remarkable about the book is that, um, the, the narrator's voice is, uh, quite childlike at times. Um, and it's very fitting for the age you were in the era that you're writing about. And so I wondered if you kind of on purpose were preserving the book as, as capturing that time for you and, maybe not letting those older voices interfere with the narrative. Was that intentional? Uh, it became intentional. Yeah. Um, it, it, it started, um, it just like, I didn't have any power over it. 
it was interesting. Um, I, as a fiction writer, I'm kind of known for writing these embroidered, very baroque, very descriptive texts. Um, and uh, when I sat down to write about Oklahoma and about my family, uh, it didn't come out that way at all. It came out in this sort of like fragmented, um, fractured. It, the language is still weird in the book, I think, but mm-hmm. um, it does it does seem like a completely different voice than I've ever worked in, um, or that I've ever even really uh, thought in. I, I would say, mm. um, but uh, obviously, it's it's something that uh, is connected to my childhood, and so. Um, it became a question in my mind because you know this there's this there's this way in which i think it's really hard for people to believe that you can have both a child's voice in a book and have a kind of more sophisticated vision of the world right. coming through that voice it sort of breaks the suspension of disbelief and and yet i wanted both of those things to be present and um so i kind of just i committed to the voice um mm-hmm. at a certain point and decided that uh uh she would she would either come across as the most precocious five-year-old <laughs> <laughs> or people would understand that there's something about the surface of a, of a book that it can have these um, illogical, uh, simultaneous voices from the past and the future happening in them. And, um, and so I'm hopeful that that will just come across for people. Oh, I think it does. I think it absolutely does. It has, uh, has both of those things. There's this, it's not, not a precocious voice, at least to my, to my read. It's certainly, um, wise. And, um, I think it gives the reader pause because, um, it really, uh, demonstrates this kind of deeper, uh, sort of painful in some ways uh, lens on the world that uh, a young person uh, has and maybe developed that year, 1980. We are speaking to Joanna Howard, who's author of Rerun Era. This is the Living Writer Show. I think we're going to take another song break. It seems like it's time for Roger Miller Mm. to to come into the show. And so we'll hear that. Um, And then maybe we'll hear from you, Joanna, if you'd like to read a selection after, uh, after the song. Okay, great. there's been a heap of legends and tall tales about Robin Hood. All different, too. Well, we folks of the animal kingdom have our own version. It's the story of what really happened in Sherwood Forest. Roger Miller, and I'm Amanda Yuli on The Living Writers Show. We're speaking with Joanna Howard, author of Rerun Era. And um, Joanna, do you want to speak a little bit about the songs you chose for today? 
Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, I I picked songs that all factor into the book in one way or another. Um, that loop that you just heard, the whistle stop, um, from the Disney cartoon Robin Hood mm-hmm. uh, is sung by Roger Miller. Roger Miller's from Oklahoma. It was one of those moments in my childhood where I um, realized that somebody from Oklahoma was doing something that was connected to something that was incredibly meaningful to me, that mm-hmm. cartoon of Robin Hood. Um, and the narrative of Robin Hood, right, is so great for when you grow up poor, yeah. uh, this yeah. idea that somebody's going to rob from the rich and give to the poor. It's just amazing. So it was this perfect conflation of things. Roger Miller's voice in this ridiculous uh, rooster dressed in medieval <laughs> costume <laughs> and the Robin Hood narrative. Um, the other songs are also uh, featured the the Steppenwolf song, um, The Pusher, which we heard before, was written by Hoyt Axton, who's also from Oklahoma. And, of course, Woody Guthrie, the greatest son from Oklahoma. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so I picked things that I thought would be in conversation with the text itself. And they're also things that make me smile when I hear them. <laughs> <laughs> as they should. As they should. Did you... Um... I, I wanted to ask you before when we were talking about your sort of research and if any into uh, the facts of the time, if if not uh, only your memory, did you kind of consume the media of the time when you were writing this book? Did you watch episodes of those TV programs and listen to some of this music? I I went back and looked at a few things. I mean, the interesting thing to me is uh, when I was when I was working on the trying to remember episodes of things, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really interested in the way we remember and misremember those things. I I did go back and look at the episode of MASH, which is my favorite, which is this just harrowing set of dream sequences in which um, Hawkeye ends up in this boat with all these uh, artificial limbs floating around him. It's it's just inconceivable that it was on television. To be honest, it's wow. just it's like it's like <laughs> something out of uh, Tarkovsky or something. And yeah. um, uh, so I did go back and look at a couple of things just to make sure that I hadn't just really misremembered them. And mm-hmm. uh, my memory was pretty accurate of those shows. <laughs> um, yeah, that must have been. I, I think I would find it strange to realize that I had remembered something so vividly and correctly. I assume that I, I've got it wrong from my five-year-old memories. Yeah, I've, I, I, I used to have this debate with a friend of mine about, um, I thought I had seen a version of the Alfred Hitchcock film Strangers on a Train that starred the actor George Sanders, and I was just absolutely convinced I'd seen that film. It doesn't exist. Um, uh, I would have bet money on it. So <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty good at inventing things that uh, I thought I saw that I didn't actually see, <laughs> but I got lucky. You're a fiction case. writer, too, so, right? <laughs> yeah, and it makes sense. You kind of wish they'd made that film. I, I kind of wish sometimes that the, the thing I think I'd seen had actually existed. <laughs> yeah, that means someone should make it, right? Um, well, I'd love for you to read a selection uh, from the book, from Rerun Era. Um, do you want to kind of choose something and introduce it for us a bit and then read Sure, yeah. Okay. I think um, I'm going to read, uh, all the book is in little short pieces, so that's convenient, but I'm going to read 
Um, the piece that is was the first to be published from this, and um, it uh, my editor at McSweeney's, the incomparable Rita Bullwinkle, um, who's just also a brilliant fiction writer. Incomparable but, doesn't cover it. Rita <laughs> is spectacular, isn't she? <laughs> she's she's just like no other person in the world. Yeah. It's really um, great. Yeah, you know, I met her many years ago, and and um, uh, and she was very young, and she was already this just absolute brilliant force in the world. Um, but she she was working for uh, a university magazine, and um, I was working on this book, and and um, I she was the first person I sent it to. She was really one of the only people that I would have ever trusted to show this book to, and I don't even think I fully understood that at the time. But mm-hmm. um, I'm really grateful that I did. Um, and um, and she picked a piece called Pearl, Pearl, Pearl. Don't give your love to Earl for the magazine that she was working on. So I'm going to read that. It also comes from a song title. There's um, a uh, a Earl and Earl Scruggs, Scruggs uh, <laughs> and Flat, uh, the banjo and guitar aficionados that were the bluegrass, um, sort, of narr- sort of bluegrass soundtrack of my childhood. And they had a song called Pearl, 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 Don't Give Your Love to Earl. And then it was always something that we loved in my household because my dad had a lot of friends and um, uh, who were named Earl, and then he happened to have one who was actually married to someone named Pearl. So I'm going to read that. <laughs> so piece. charming. Okay. Pearl, 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 don't give your love to Earl. Pearl and Ruby and Opal are sisters, and one of them is married to my dad's friend, Urban. Can this be right? Urban? Urban? I never seen it spelled. One of the sisters marries Urban, and one of them marries someone named Roy, and the last one, Pearl, marries someone named Earl, and that is not even made up. All those guys are old timers. My dad has lots of friends that are old timers. This is maybe because he started the trucking company real young, and he was part of a union, and in those days the old timers in the union helped out the young guys, and so when the old timers retire, you have to go visit them on the weekends and jaw with them. The manner of how they jaw is mostly needling. They sit around and they needle each other. This is a way of showing fondness and respect and gratitude. The old-timers are sometimes so old and have so many health problems that it's hard to even remember who they are because they aren't around for long. Like the skinny one with the heart problems and emphysema and maybe cancer too, who, is a, who has a house in Joplin with an apple tree and a big sloping lawn. When we go in the house, the kitchen counter is just nothing but those orange bottles of pills with childproof caps, but huge ones, big as a Pepsi bottle almost. I am out the back door like a shot when I see that skinny old-timer in front of all those pills. I like the apple tree, though. I like the apple trees because they are more climbable than most all other trees because the limbs branch up at the base, and you can stand in the center of the branches, and that makes it easier to get into the tree. I just want to get into the trees, and it's harder than it looks even in the romper because I have no arm strength. That old timer with the apple tree does not make it long, and so my time with the apple tree is brief. The old timers have wives, too, and sometimes after the old timer goes, my dad keeps visiting the window, the widow. But the conversations with the widows are rarely needling. I pay less attention, and when I go with my dad to talk to the widows, he likes me to stay close because I am a distraction for the widows. I don't get to leave and get into the tree. But for now, Urban is still alive, and he and Opal live in a little house down by the river which has a bench swing on a chain. So when my dad visits Urban, I swing on the bench swing, and periodically Opal comes out in one of her flowery dresses and gives me a weird kind of baked thing, which is old lady baking. So sort of good, but also at risk for having a flavor that is all wrong, like raisin or maple. 
For some reason, I am more respectful of Opal than some of the other old ladies. For the most part, I like all the old ladies that my dad likes, but I distrust all the old ladies that my mom likes. Why is that? My dad likes the tough old ladies. Well, my mom likes the soppier old ladies who run dress shops and hair salons. When the town floods, which is like every spring, it doesn't come quite up into Urban's yard, but you can definitely walk to the flood part without getting out of sight of Urban's yard. So I'm permitted to walk to the edge of the flood part while being watched by my dad or Opal from behind the chain link fence. From here, you can see the houses that are underwater. I love to look at the houses that are partly drowned. You see things floating, but next to the edge of a roof, which makes the world seem way more interesting. What is taking place underwater in those houses? Are fish coming through the living rooms? Are water moccasins? Probably. I am way afraid of water moccasins. I am right about that one. Everyone in town is poor, but the floodplain people are the poorest, obviously, or they would know better than to be in their bathing suits playing in the floodwater, because that is how you get tetanus and probably ringworm, too. I'm not scared of ringworm. My dad is always threatening me with ringworm. If we go where there is a farm cat and there are farm kittens, my dad will not let me play with the kittens because of ringworm. I chase the kittens under the porch and then hide under the porch and play with the kittens anyway. I do not get ringworm. I do not get it until years later when I get it from a dojo in Pitcher, Oklahoma, and my teacher sprays my hand with athlete's foot medicine, and it instantly goes away. Seriously? I don't understand about what this worm even is, since it's more like a scab. My mom is always threatening me with tetanus, and I want no part of this, since it involves debilitating shots in the arm, and then I can't lift my arm for weeks. My dad really doesn't like it when the old-timers go. When Urban goes, he looks in on Opal for a long time after, and even though I don't think he has much to say to her. There are a lot of widows in the town. All three Jewel sisters are widows before long. Thank you, Joanna Howard, reading from Rerun Era. Um, when I was actually looking through my copy of um, the book to find that section, um, it really struck me. I, I was looking at some of the other names of the um, section headings, chapter names. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that you do this genius thing with not just naming the sections, but um, in the the past tense and the present tense that you sort of blend, as we were talking about before, with this sort of childlike view. I mean, you use language in the last passage about um, old lady baking, which I, I found very charming. <laughs> and sort of it comes through the lens of, um, of that five-year-old you, that five-year-old narrator. And when you said something was not even made up, um, that sounds... Uh, that sounds present tense and, and childlike in a way. But then when I was flipping through um, um, the book, there's a section titled, I Will Not Eat a Squirrel, which mm-hmm. <laughs> has the same um, sort of humor, but also that um, immediacy of a, of a young person. And the next section is called Folks Tend to Kill Themselves, which mm-hmm. I think w- when you look at those two together, you realize that the book has this amazing way of blending what you were experiencing in the moment and what you could perceive and kind of report on as a five-year-old. And then you have this view of decades later, um, to, to even notice something as, as, um, as dark and as, as terrible as suicide, but also to see a pattern in it, which I'm guessing you, you weren't seeing as a child. Um, can you speak to how you, I mean, I'm, I'm, wondering how you put a book together like that uh, because it has this uh, 
this it's sort of an amazing feat <laughs> to be able mm. to do both. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, it's funny. I've I've never really been someone who was particularly good at linear thinking. Um, and when I started working in fiction, it would come up a lot where people would read my stories and they would say, well, can't you just put things in the order that they happen so that we can follow them? And uh, it, it really seemed to me that there was something else that was more important to me about juxtaposition, that sometimes things just don't make as much sense to me when they're in the order that they happen. There's, there's, yeah. there's something else that's important there. And so... Um, for me, it's pretty natural to be uh, unable to stop thinking the past and the present and the future sort of all simultaneously. Um, and um, I, I think that I realized, I, well, I think when I was starting to put the book together, I thought, well, I would do this thing where I would have pieces that felt like they were from the adult me, and that would be one voice, and then mm-hmm. there would be these pieces from the child me, and then there would be, you know, some research-type passages about Oklahoma or about, you know, the the super fun site near where I grew up and that sort of stuff. Um, but then I would get into them and it would just all blur together immediately and it was impossible to separate out what I knew about those places now, what I fear about the future of those places looks like, and um, and then what I remember from my childhood. So it, it's, I'm glad it works because I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't have really done it any other way, I don't think. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting perspective on the kind of sorting of of things. Uh, we were talking before about your using pop culture as kind of an organizing principle of sorting things out, but this seems um, beautifully merged and not sorted in the voice mm. of this book. Um, so let's hear um, one of the other songs that you chose, um, and then we'll be back. This is The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping still I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going while the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going well the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze And skipping over the ocean like a stone And we're back on The Living Writer Show with Joanna Howard, who's joining us via phone. She's the author of Rerun Era, out soon from McSweeney's. Um, and, you know, we were talking before the break about the sort of past and present. And the book is, if I'm not mistaken, the book is written all in present tense, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. 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 But you, um, you do this great thing of bringing the lens of the future into that voice in some ways. And I wondered about... Um, you know, you you said at the at the top of of the show something about how these events or events from our childhood can stretch into the rest of our lives. Um, 
Can you speak to that a little bit? Do you think that the events in in the book are the, the primary ones that have stretched into your adulthood and into your present? Or do you think this is just like one little part of um, of many that have stretched into your life? I, I do think that the... Um I think that the pieces that we experience that are the most, um, I don't want to say it's just the most traumatic, but I think that when when trauma occurs and also it's not understood Mm -hmm. uh, in the family, and uh, and then it's those pieces that I've really, I felt followed me my whole life. And... um, and I think because there is a sort of a moratorium in my family about talking about certain things, like, um, for instance, my, my grandfather's suicide, uh, my father had forgotten it. And so none of us were really allowed to talk about it in front of him. We, we had learned about it from his mother, mm-hmm. and, um, and he had forgotten it. And, and um, so we, we could never speak about that. And then when, when his mother passed away, he found a box with the clipping that, that talked about his father's suicide and he remembered it all and and it really uh it was really just a a a kind of shocking thing to witness somebody suddenly um like waking up to their memory right Mm -hmm. and so i think that for me the memories that are from my childhood that maybe not be may not be as traumatic as that one that my father experienced but things like dealing with my father's stroke and some of those sorts of things um, because there were a lot of details around them that I just didn't understand and that, that, that the family just wasn't willing to talk about, uh, I've held on to them. And so the book was a way for me to sort of revisit those and see if I could get to a place where they could exist a little bit more gently alongside um, some of the other parts of my childhood or, or mm-hmm. in my memory con- currently. That's a profound contrast uh, to speak about your father who forgot something so important to one's childhood and so it sounds like deeply traumatic and for you his child to have published a book about your memories i mean that's that's the opposite of forgetting publishing a memoir mm-hmm. yeah um so i would love uh your perspective on um you know, I know you're, are you teaching now? Are you teaching at Denver University? Yes, I am. I'm working, um, I'm working with some really pretty spectacular PhD students in creative writing at Denver. And uh, they're all building their own books and uh, writing their own stories. So it's been really great. I started working with them this year. And um, yeah, it's been really fantastic. I still live half the year on the East Coast. So that's a little bit uh-huh. Uh, zany, but yeah, I, I, I've loved working with my students. And how do you balance that? I, I talk to a lot of people who teach writing and who say it can be very challenging to keep your own writing and your own voice alive as a writer when you're sort of cultivating and fostering all these, all these other ones. How do you do that? Uh, it is very hard. I, I think you've been uh, told very correctly. <laughs> That it's hard. You spend a lot of time reading other people's work and thinking so carefully about it that you just really don't want to do that. I think that's probably also why I spend so much time watching television. Um, You know, it's not television anymore. It's all on the laptop. But um, in any case, uh, as a way, it's like I have a friend who calls this the brain squeegee. She comes home and she watches television. It just sort of clears out all of these um, conversations dealing with artists and writers. Um, (laughs) And so... 
uh, one technique is is to try and do that to try and clear the palate and yeah. you get a day off. But I also think that I've been really lucky that uh, the students that I've worked with both at Denver and I worked at Brown for a lot of years. Um, I w- was able to work with students who their what they were doing was close enough in conversation to what I was doing that I was learning a lot from them. I was um, learning to read things and find books by younger writers that um, I wouldn't have probably been able to find or or be exposed to if I hadn't been in conversation with these younger people. So I think it's uh, pretty important to uh, to writers to try and remain in conversations with uh, today's youth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then you might get someone like Rita Bullwinkle uh, you in your Rita. life. <laughs> <laughs> and then you and then you have then you just have this gift of um, of vision. New eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Would you like to talk about um, anything that you're working on now in your writing? Uh, sure. Um, I have a really big novel that I'm, I'm working on revisions on uh, a novel that I've been working on for 10 years, which is, is really different than rerun. It's, um, it's this kind of, it's my fantasy of what a woman filmmaker would be like if there had been these sort of women filmmakers that had the power and the status of someone like uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And so I have this narrative of a female director who sort of deals with her male actors, not unlike the way Hitchcock dealt with his female actresses, which was that he sort of uh, had a totalitarian regime and, mm-hmm. and owned their lives and, 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 and constructed them and then could ruin them. Um, uh, and so I, I have that book that's about that character who she's had, she's at the beginning of the book, uh, the actor that she works with is killed on location and the implication being that uh, she may be um, kind of got him killed on location. Kind she, of culpable. She, she didn't intend to, but uh-huh. she, she, her practices kind of created that. And so she goes to a, um, a really fanciful sort of uh, mental institution and um, and is trying to recover from the trauma of this particular event, and she encounters a lot of uh, interesting, uh, sort of absurdist characters in this place. Um, so that novel I've been working on, and it's kind of about how I think you. Well, it's also about how you how you remain relevant um, as an artist, but um, it's also about male and female relationships and around the production of art, which is something that, I mean, I think in, in the Me Too era, we're starting to uh, get a little bit of a handle on some of that stuff, but uh, will we ever get a handle on it? I don't know. It has I mean, a that, long history, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't have such a long future, but I, I'm cynical about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Can't wait to, to read it soon. Um, you know, we ask all of our guests on The Living Writer Show to provide um, any advice for young or emerging writers, and it sounds like you work with many of them. <laughs> Do you have any anything that you would, that you convey to someone just beginning their writing career? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that the most important thing is to just maintain joy in your work, in, in your practice of your work, even if you're writing about the most, I mean, I write about some very depressing topics, <laughs> but um, but the process of building the work and then the result of the work, it has to give you some joy. And um, I see a lot of young people get sort of lost in various criticisms that are sort of flying at them from everywhere. 
every moment is a different moment, and um, uh, politically and emotionally, and um, you know, depending on where you are in the world, and uh, and so like staying grounded and just staying in the love of the work is super important. And I think it's I've seen a lot of really talented young writers get kind of ground down by either the publishing process or by things that they're hearing from their teachers that may not be accurate. Um, and then they just don't write anymore. And so it's really important to preserve that, that joy and to remember that it's, it's just ultimately it's just you and the, and the work that you make. Um, and so do something that you would want to stand by, that you would want to see, um, you know, appear in the world and, and do the work that, that the world needs, and um, I think if you, if they do those things, then they'll they'll be able to stay stay cool under pressure <laughs> and experience the joy in making it right. Yeah, That's, I love that uh, as your first the first part of your advice is the joy. Um, yeah. Well, we're, we will in a moment. We'll close the show with some math mash theme song, which is um, very apt. Thank you for choosing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know what? The other thing I want to ask is, um, which I, I love to ask all of our guests, is about uh, reading and other recommendations. And you hinted at something a moment ago that you do a brain squeegee situation with watching TV. So I have to ask for TV recommendations. And then I'd love to know what you're reading these days. Oh, gosh. Um Oh, can I be honest about what I watch on television? Oh. Um, you can be <laughs> yeah. honest with us, yes. Okay. Uh, no, it's actually, it's not. It's uh, Most recently, I just watched all of Narcos. I don't know if you I followed that, that. Um, no. program. It's um, the first couple of seasons of that uh, show deal with um, sort of the fantasy or the narrative of Pablo Escobar, the, the, yeah. the cartel leader. And that was a really big... Um, big deal in my childhood. Like we were, I was that era where we were like, you know, it's like, just say no to drugs. There's a war on drugs. And, <laughs> right. then, and the most evil person that could be put forward through the media was Pablo Escobar. And, um, uh, and then when I like later in life got to know like people who were from Colombia and I had a slightly different sort of understanding of that world, I was really excited to watch Narcos. It's, <laughs> it's probably a, you know, I don't, it's a crazy fantasy and I don't, I don't really know. Um, you know how much of it is is absolutely accurate, but I enjoyed watching that and uh, um, and sort of using that to kind of. None of my students are really writing anything like that. <laughs> that's so. that's good. Yeah, I think having that TV can be such a departure. I mean, as your book very uh, very aptly kind of demonstrates, uh, TV should be that. Any final before we close? Any final book recommendations or book thoughts? Uh, oh gosh, I read a lot of really great stuff this year. Um, there's a um, there's a book called uh, The Emissary by Yoko Tawada, who's a Japanese writer. It's a sort of fan- fantasy of a of an alternate um, alternate sort of reality of Japan uh, if the if the nuclear fallout had been maybe more disastrous um, and mm-hmm. had led to a sort of new environmental. Uh, scenario, so it's a really fascinating one. I think I'm also watching Chernobyl right now. I'm I'm pretty obsessed uh-huh. with um, with nuclear nuclear threat. Um, yeah. It was a big deal in my childhood, and it seems like it's coming back, and that's shocking. You don't it's think back. that nuclear <laughs> threat's going to come back? A lot of things from the '80s are kind of back. Yeah, oh, they are so back. It is. It they is really, are back. Really scary. Um, yeah. So I loved that book. Um, I. Um, 
I read the, uh, I just taught this book called La Divine, which is by a French writer, Marine Ndiaye, um, which is kind of about uh, thinking through like problems of mother-daughter relationships, but also deals really, really delicately with questions of race in France um, and um, and sort of post-colonial uh, inheritance of of shame. And uh, I mm-hmm. thought that book was amazing. Joanna Howard, thank you for joining us on The Living Writer Show. We're so glad to have had you. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk to you, Amanda. Okay, we got you, kid. Ready? Hi, I'm Abby Hoffman, on the run, just listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Good evening. It's 6 p.m. My name's Christine, and you're listening to The Polka Party. (laughs) 